Amen. Thank you, choir, musicians. Isn't it wonderful to come into God's house and confess our neediness before him? Isn't it wonderful to just say, I don't bring anything to the table. Isn't it great to come and say, I need you every hour, God. I'm desperate for you. It's true whether you realize it or not. Thank you, Aaron. That we are desperate for the Lord, that we need him every minute of every hour. Thank you for that good reminder, choir, of that truth. Uh, today we're going to look at what's probably the most famous passage in all of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. It's a perfect conclusion to our September series on uh, the idea of I need a hero. And we, we've been looking at these passages in this, this section of Isaiah that point to a great rescuer who God himself will send, who will have God's own spirit in him and on him to do what God wants him to do, which is to save his people. And so far, he's really been this kind of mysterious, unnamed, masked hero who we don't know, but he's, we know he's going to come and rule over not just Israel, but he's going to rule over all the nations. And he comes to establish justice, we're told, in chapter 42, that he's going to come to make things right. There's a lot of things broken in our world, aren't there? Someone... You know, a TV viewer, I, I forget that we're on TV sometimes across like all of Middle Tennessee. I got a phone call from the Rotary Club in McMinnville. So shout out to McMinnville if you're watching from McMinnville. I, I had to look up where that was. Um, but they, they said, we want you to come speak to the Rotary Club. And I said, why? You know, and they said, because we, we have a lot of families who watch Woodmont on, on TV. So thank you for, again, your tithes and offerings that support our TV ministry in the prisons, in the nursing homes, places, uh, shut-ins who can't get out, uh, especially during COVID pandemic. I, I do appreciate that. Someone said, uh, you know, the choir looks terrible. With, they look terrible with their mask on. You got you to have them take their mask off because it just, it doesn't look good on TV. <laughs> and we said, yeah, it, you're right, it doesn't. They're beautiful people and we want to see their, their beautiful faces. But uh, we're trying to love our neighbors. We're trying to love our neighbors and what our, our experts are telling us, and we believe the experts who are these loving, godly people, is that masks help mitigate the risk of transmitting disease. So we're doing it. And uh, that's why we do it. I hope you understand. I'm sorry it doesn't have great aesthetic appeal on TV, but uh, we're trying to, to love our neighbors uh, to the best of our ability. We know that the masks aren't perfect and that they don't, you know, who knows of all the science God knows. Uh, but we're just trying to do our best to love one another as he would have us to do it. So God's going to fix everything, including sickness, disease, pandemics. All of that is going to be a thing of the past when he comes to set the record straight. But we've already seen that he's not like other world leaders. He's not like other, you know, military conquerors who come in and kick the bad guys out. Our text today is going to flesh out what kind of hero the Messiah really is. That this text is going to be Isaiah, really the Lord through Isaiah, showing us that the hero comes to accomplish something that is so subversive and surprising that it's so much greater than any worldly leader or dictator or military conqueror could ever accomplish. So here's the deal. Isaiah 52 to thir verse 13 to 53, 12 is one cohesive poem. 
And yes, I'm going to go ahead and say it. The people who did the chapters and verses got it wrong. They just got it wrong, okay? That's not inspired. The chapters and verses, Isaiah didn't sit there and write the chapters and verses in there. Those were added to the scriptures sometime around the 1200s AD. And those guys, I think they were trying to, you know, wouldn't it be cool if Isaiah had 66 books like the Bible has 66 books? And they were trying to make it nice and neat. But they, they missed that this is one poem. It's, it's 15 verses. It's broken up into five stanzas, three verses each is how it's supposed to be read. It's a beautiful poem. And these 15 verses have inspired tons of books and articles and songs and Christmas music and Good Friday uh, literature. Every you know, Easter season, we talk about these verses. And we're going to try to cut through all the noise today. And, and maybe you've heard this passage a thousand times, maybe a hundred thousand times, but we're going to try to get to the heart of what this poem is really saying. And here Isaiah points to the very gospel itself, the heart of what Christianity is all about. The, the prophet Isaiah is going to point to the blazing center of God's plan to make all things new. And that plan is centered around the cross of Jesus Christ. In, in many ways, you know, what we're going to see here is an event that would forever become the, the, the changing point, the climax of the story of everything ever. We're going to see that this event would be a day when a self-taught Jewish rabbi would be executed by Roman authorities for no other reason than the fact that the local population demanded it. This is a Good Friday text a text that brings us face to face with the reality of the crucifixion of Jesus. And you know, one of the best part of my jobs is, uh, you know, explaining the gospel, but there's a lot of other things that pastors get to do. And one of those things is premarital counseling. I've really enjoyed that. Sitting down with these couples that have committed to spend the rest of their lives together in a loving Christian marriage. And, and it's very countercultural in a lot of ways because our culture is all about individualism and marriage is two becoming one as we as Christians believe. And that's hard. <laughs> that's hard. Some people you've heard, you know, maybe old pastors say something like, you know, what's, when you get married, son, they'll, they'll tell the guy, you know, all that's yours becomes hers and all that's hers becomes hers. You've heard people say that. But it's true that, that you no longer have these categories of yours and mine. It's, it's this new entity. It's this new oneness, this new family that is one thing that God creates through Christian marriage. And in many ways, Christian marriage is about this mysterious union that points to the gospel itself. You know, some people, again, when, when they get married, I've had couples in my office who've told me about insane amounts of debt that one person has, and I have to explain, you understand that when you get married, that debt is yours, that you own this together. And, and they, they do, they understand that. There's no longer this yours and mine thing. And Christian marriage, again, is a reflection of Jesus and his bride, the church, how we become one with him. Do you see where I'm going? This is, this is the point of Christianity. This is how Christianity works. When we're united to Christ, when we surrender everything to him and, and 
invite him to be in charge of our lives as he is in charge of everything anyway. When we lay down our lives to him and, and become born again by grace through faith, what's ours becomes his and what's his becomes ours. What do we bring to the table? What do we bring to the marriage? We bring our brokenness. We bring our proclivity for making a mess of things. We bring our deep-rooted shame. We bring our sorrow, our sadness, our longing, our fears, our own inability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. What does Jesus bring? Everything. Jesus brings to the union life. He brings purpose, meaning to our lives. He brings joy that is not dependent upon circumstances. He brings wholeness, and that's what atonement means. It means to at one meant, to be put together again, to be made at one, to be made whole. We're going to see how in this text, Jesus puts us back together. I know a lot of you have been Christians longer than I've been alive, really. I'm looking over at some of these ladies here that I know have been Christians longer than I've even been alive. I know that a few of you have actually been Christians twice as long as I've been alive, which is amazing. And you, you've, you've heard this story before. You've heard these words before, that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. That's what atonement is all about. But maybe, perhaps, that message has grown stale. Maybe you're young and even that message has grown stale. Maybe you don't even believe it anymore. Maybe you need a fresh look at what Christ's atonement is really all about and, and to look at what it really costs him and what it gives you. So without any Eddie Murphy references, let me introduce our outline for today really quick. Trading places. What's his is ours. Uh, we get to trade places. What's his becomes ours. We're going to first see God's surprising servant, not like what we would expect. Then the next stanza, stanza two, the next three verses, we're going to see how we rejected him. God's people really rejected and despised him. Then the next section, we're going to see how he bore our sins, though. He took upon himself our iniquity. Then number four, he willingly obeyed. He didn't do it because he was forced to. He did it out of his own compulsion for love. Then finally, we're going to see God's surprising victory. This is a different kind of servant altogether, a different kind of hero. Now, again, uh, we're, let's start with part one. We're going to see how God's telling us about who this hero is, what kind of servant he is. Hear now the word of the Lord, Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That kind of language, by the way, is not used of, of anyone else in all of Scripture. Not Moses, not David, not Joshua, not Solomon, and all his splendor was described in Scripture as high and lifted up. Where have we heard that phrase before? Dr. Sherman brought a beautiful sermon from Isaiah chapter 6. I think it was back in February when Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. And he was high and lifted up in the throne room of heaven. And the train of his robe filled the temple. 
God himself is high and lifted up. This servant is indeed himself high and lifted up as well. That means that our hero is like God himself. And normally we would expect a hero who is high and lifted up to be really, really good looking. (laughs) In our culture, that's what we would expect. But God's ways are not our ways. God's not some Hollywood executive trying to sell tickets. God's ways are surprising to us because in our very limited human understanding of him, we assume that he would do things a certain way. Look at verses 14 to 15. As many were astonished at you, at us, God's people, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. God's saying that as as surprised as the world was that you, a bunch of ragtag, have-nothings, little tiny minority group in the land of Canaan, as much as the world was like, who are these Jews that they survived? Even more so will the world be astonished at the hero who saves you. Even more surprising, even more subversive will be our hero. And what's this deal about sprinkling many nations? People sprinkle, that word for sprinkle is not used anywhere else again in the Old Testament except one time in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 14. Do you know what the word is used in the context of? It's the day of atonement. Yom Kippur was two Thursdays ago, actually. The Jewish, the most holy day in all of Jewish life, the day when when the sins of the people would be transferred upon the head of a scapegoat who is sent out into the wilderness to bear the sins of the people away. That day, they would take the blood of a lamb and sprinkle the altar, the mercy seat, actually, with the blood of a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. That means the servant somehow makes atonement for the nations. That means that somehow he puts them at one and makes them whole, not just the Jews, but all nations. All the world leaders who see this are silent. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they've not heard, they understand. This is surprising to them in such a way that they're just, you know, silenced. Can you imagine a bunch of politicians and world leaders not having anything to say? Lord, please. (laughs) look at the next stanza the next stanza the the speaker shifts from the Lord to his people himself to a representative for the people of God in the second part (coughs) I would love some water I got a bottle right there Morgan the the next part we're going to see Lord's (laughs) people how they rejected him and that if you don't understand that's us by the way Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1 says this. Who has believed what he's heard from us? I'm sorry. I think I have fall allergies. I I never did as a kid, but now I've developed them. That's part of getting old, I guess. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The people ask, when this hero shows up, how did we receive him? How did we react to him? We, we did not react well. Who believed that this hero was going to be the one that God would send to rescue the world? Jesus was not an impressive figure with an impressive education who came from an impressive family. No, he, he was the son of a carpenter, a tradesman, and from a backwater town called Nazareth, from a little town that people said, could anything good possibly come out of Nazareth? I know all the paintings of Jesus make him look like some kind of beautiful European man, right? All the movies about Jesus, he has great teeth, and he's always so winsome, you know? He's got this great smile, and he just makes you want to be his friend. He seems like someone cool that you'd want to hang out with, right? But that's not the picture we get in Isaiah 53. The lamb that was slain is not an appealing picture, it's not something that we're naturally drawn to. But we all tend to do this. We make Jesus into our own image. We see him like we'd like him to be. But, but that doesn't fit the reality because we're not drawn to him for any earthly reason. We're not drawn to him because he's cool or because he's successful or because he's funny. We love him only because he first loved us and gave his life for us. Jesus paid it all, now all to him I owe. And that leads us to the middle section. The speaker, again, shows us what the love of Christ looks like, this surprising love of Christ. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, the punishment. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one. We're all in the same sinking boat of sin to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity the unevenness, the how bad we were and how good God is. That's what that word means, of us all. <clears throat> on God, all that unevenness was laid on Christ. You know, there's a strong shift in a lot of Christian thinking away from what is known in theological thinking as substitutionary atonement or penal substitution. It means punishment in our place. A lot of theologians lately are, are thinking, no, God isn't that kind of a mean God. He wouldn't punish his own son like that. He's a loving God, and he wouldn't do something like that. I, I hear this all the time. There are doctrines that say that when Jesus died on the cross, that, that he was doing it as a moral example to show us what a good person would do. Or that the, the Christus Victor theory of atonement that Jesus was showing that he wins by his death and resurrection. Now, that's true. But to deny completely the doctrine of penal substitution or of substitutionary atonement 
is to miss out on what the entire story of Scripture is saying from start to finish. You cannot get rid of it and still be faithful to the text. You know, I hope it's not too controversial in here to say that Jesus died for our sins, because I believe that. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. But I was taught by my undergraduate religion professors, this is not true. The Passion of the Christ, that movie came out when I was in college. One of my professors, religion professors said, no, that movie got it all wrong. Jesus didn't have to die for our sins. And I thought, oh yeah, that makes sense. At the time I was like, yeah, that's, that's good stuff. I don't wanna believe in a God who's mean or petty, but that's just it. God isn't mean or petty. Given the whole counsel of scripture, we see the love and justice of God meet perfectly in the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the arm of the Lord, the, the power of God that was revealed to us, the mighty deliverance of God's people that we've longed for, that's infinitely greater than just being freed by Cyrus and Babylon and being sent back home. <coughs> it's even better, it's even more magnificent than the exodus from Egypt, where God's people crossed on dry ground while the Egyptian army collapsed in pursuit under the waves. This is God's people and all the nations being saved, being rescued from that from which they could not save themselves. Their own guilty conscience, their own shame, their own brokenness. This is the core of the poem and it's the core of our faith as well. I love how Ray Ortland says it in his commentary, Jesus really was a man of sorrows, but they weren't his own. <laughs> Jesus was a man of sorrows, but they weren't his. They were our sorrows. And this is not God being cruel or, or violent unnecessarily. This is not God trying to settle some petty score. It's him being love. It's also him being just it's him forging a way, making it possible in a perfect way to bring his beloved children back to himself. Ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah. What a savior. And I've said before, God just doesn't let things slide because he can't. He's just, it would be unjust. He wouldn't be a good God if he was like, yeah, whatever, I'll just let it go. He wouldn't be good. But he so loved us, he so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I remember in my high school economics class, my senior year, we learned an economic principle known as TINSTAFUL. Does anybody remember this? Is this just me? TINSTAFUL, you know what it stands for? It's like T-N-S-T-A-F-L. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Do you remember that? Maybe it was just me. Coach Waller, you know, they always have coaches teach economics, I think. Uh, Coach Waller said that that means it's an economic principle that someone has to pay for it, that that lunch is being produced by someone. I think it has to do with the law of economics or something, that the law of production, that you can't just get rid of something. Someone has to pay. The laws of production dictate there's a cost to everything. The Bible is clear about the effects of sin. Sin kills, it destroys, it breaks down, it ruins, it corrupts, it brings decay. It must be dealt with. 
To put it in economic terms, simply, the price of sin is death. I honestly don't understand how some theologians try to dance around this and, and jump through so many loopholes to avoid the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Scripture's clear, again, from Genesis to Revelation, about the atoning work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That doesn't mean that he didn't die as a good example, too. That doesn't mean that he didn't die to give us victory over death and sin. Those things are true as well but you can't get, throw out substitutionary atonement altogether. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, curse is everyone who's hanged on a tree. That's from Deuteronomy. Christ fulfilled that. Romans 4, 24, it, righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. How do you deny the, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement? This is what I mean by trading places, by, by getting what is his and giving him what's ours. Martin Luther, the 16th century German monk and, and reformer, wrote about the gospel of Jesus Christ in this way. He talked about marriage, like I said at the beginning. He talked about this great exchange that happens when a man and woman come together in marriage. In his book, The Freedom of the Christian, Luther says this, Accordingly, the believing soul can boast of and glory in whatever Christ has as though it were his own. And whatever the soul has, Christ claims as his own. Let us compare these and we shall see inestimable benefits. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sin, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them and sin, death, and damnation will be Christ, while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's and bestow on her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, how shall he not give her all that is his? And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not take all that is hers? What a good deal for us, huh? We come out ahead in this. When we were like wandering sheep, just going wherever we thought the grass might be greener, as we're so prone to do, God has sent us a good, good shepherd who lays down his very life for us in order to save us and give us what is rightfully his, his perfection. Let's go to the fourth stanza. We see that our hero willingly obeyed God's will. Verse 7 to 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and a rich man in his death. 
although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is who Jesus perfectly fulfilled. Remember the Joseph of Arimathea gave him his tomb? Joseph was a rich man. How perfectly did Jesus Christ fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies? Jesus would later tell his disciples, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly of my own accord. He didn't want to do that. In the garden, he prayed, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. Jesus did this sacrificially in obedience. He didn't do what I would have done and pointed out the fallacy of the argument of the Jews before Caiaphas. He didn't point out the uh, inadequacy of the Roman system and the crucifixion. He didn't point out the injustice of the false charges. He didn't do what I would have done and called for firebolts from heaven to wipe out all the Roman soldiers who mocked him and who struck him over and over again and who eventually drove iron spikes into his hands and feet. The will of God was to redeem you and me and to fix what's broken in this world. And his means for doing that was the servant of Jesus Christ. That segues nicely into our final section God's surprising victory. Look at verses 10 to 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. Even after his death, he shall see his offspring. Pointing to the resurrection. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. After he's crushed, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You know, the hero is going to look around at the end of the day and people say, was it worth it, all you went through? And he's going to say, yeah, I'm fully satisfied. What I did was well worth it. Being the centerpiece of God's plan to redeem the world, yeah, that's worth it. And God speaks here and gives approval for, and reward for all that the servant has done. Not only will he surprise the nations, he's going to surprise God's people too. All their religious striving, all their yearning, all their systems of rituals that have never been able to make them right with God would forever be obsolete because the spotless Lamb of God would once and for all atone for their sins and shortcomings. Healing, forgiveness, even the very faith that we possess are brought to us through the suffering of the servant. When I was in Australia, 2001, I had gone back as a, after my freshman year in college. I was 20 years old. I didn't know much about anything. I think I was 19, actually. I didn't know uh, a lot about theology, but I'd grown up in church. My parents had always taken me to church. I'd heard the, the old, old story. I'd given my life to Jesus as a seven-year-old. But I, I'd never been in this kind of context before. We were hosting an evangelistic event at the church I was working at. We were doing a Christmas in July. You know, in the Southern Hemisphere, their Christmas is at the beach. They do barbecues. It's hot 
in December, and it's cold in July, even in Sydney, it's, you know, in the 40s and 50s. So they wanted to have a, an American-type Christmas, and we cut out snowflakes, and we put them all around the church, and we prepared some Christmas trivia and, and some Christmas foods that they eat there, and we had a gospel presentation that the pastor was going to present to the church. And most of the people in the church were like second-generation Australians whose parents had immigrated from China. And, and they were, you know, nominal Buddhist, this kind of syncretism uh, religion that they had, but they weren't believers. And these, you know, adult children had invited their parents to come to this event and to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I didn't understand that because I grew up in this Christian culture in Nashville where it's very much the Bible Belt. And we prayed with the leaders of the church before the event started. And one of the guys prayed for his dad, who wasn't a believer, who was coming to the event. And he prayed with such deep conviction for his father that he would hear the gospel and respond in faith. And it just, it broke my heart. I never heard somebody do that, I don't think, like that. And he said, Lord, help my dad to understand that you died for his sins. And I've heard that a million times, but it hit me in such a deep way in that moment that I started weeping. I'm not a big crier, but man, I started weeping. It just hit me that Jesus died for my sins. Let that sink in today. If you're looking for an application to this text, that's it. That's what it is. Let the truth of the atonement hit you in your heart today. My prayer is that we all would embrace fully the depth of the exchange of what God has given us and what he has taken from us. Are you carrying a burden of sin today? Are you carrying a burden of shame? Are you carrying a burden of guilt with you today? Give Jesus all of it and receive his perfect righteousness which he longs to give to you, either for the first time or for the millionth time. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lay your sin, lay your sorrow, lay your suffering at Jesus' feet and let him give you perfect peace and rest. There's no better way to live. There's no other way to live. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you we thank you, thank you, thank you. We thank you. And God, we thank you that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Forgive us for trying to manage our sin problem on our own. May we receive your grace afresh today as revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you for how beautifully you forged a way to make us right with yourself. You dealt with our sin. You dealt with our shame once and for all. And yet we cling to it. We run to it. We hold on to it. May we today, oh God, throw off the sin that so easily entangles and then run the race set before us with energy, with enthusiasm, and with perseverance. 
keeping our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. You authored our faith in the beginning of all time and before the beginning of all time. And you perfected it in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. May we take into our hearts the truth of the gospel today in a way that changes us, in a way that A, makes us holy, and then B, compels us to go out and live a life of gospel-centeredness, full of gratitude, full of hope, full of praise, and always looking for the renewal of all things and playing our part in the renewal of all things. Bringing beauty where there's ugliness, bringing life where there's death, bringing justice where there's injustice, <coughs> and bringing peace where there is violence. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in the high and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.